Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Yes, it is all the science that you could ever need, at least for the next half an hour or thereabouts. My name is Chris, and joining me, as always, we have good old Stu. Stu, how are you? I'm very well, Chris. Uh, how are you? I'm very good. And have you got um, some amazing science for us today? Well, I have uh, had some had some issues with sleep at the moment. I'm, I'm having trouble um, going to sleep, and that has led me to be having trouble waking up as well, which is not really a surprise. It is kind of a, a, a balancing act, I think, the, the, the activity of sleep. But it's got me thinking about um, that state between when you're awake and when you're asleep. and, and the, the twilight zone. Yeah, yeah, going into being asleep and coming out of being asleep, and the unusual things that can uh, happen to your mind while you're doing these, uh, you know, transfers, I guess. Um, and I found out there's names for both of these states. Um, but um, one of them is kind of all-encompassing and applies to both, which is um, hypnagogia. Okay. Which is which is the state of moving from awakeness to sleep or, or vice versa. But there is another one called hypnopompia, which is specifically about waking up, uh, which I found much more amusing. But that's that's less widely used as a term. But I'm going to look at what, what do these words mean and what is this state which we all actually pass through, but some of it is more uh, action-packed for some of us than for others. Wow, well, all bound for Morningtown on the Morningtown ride, I think, is what we're doing. Uh, I'll other seekers, for those who didn't get that reference. Um, fantastic, Stu. Uh, Claire will be joining us as well. Claire actually is bringing along a guest. She will be speaking to Barkanji woman, researcher, storyteller, and writer, Zena Cumston, who is the curator of a new exhibition at the University of Melbourne called Emu Sky, which brings together First Nations artists and researchers to shine a light on some of the uh, Aboriginal knowledge systems and scientific methodologies that formed a fundamental part of how they have thrived and shaped this continent for over 65,000 years and counting. And we're going to look at things relating to agricultural practice, plant use, innovation, culture, and connection. So... That sounds like a a timely and very fascinating uh, thing to talk about. So, uh, on with the show. Knowledge systems informed by careful observation and scientific methodologies and understanding have been a fundamental part of how Aboriginal peoples have thrived and shaped this continent continuously for over 65,000 years and counting. Now, a new exhibition, Emu Sky, at the University of Melbourne brings together First Nations artists and researchers 
and shines a light on some of these knowledges relating to agricultural practice, plant use, innovation, culture and connection. And to talk to us about the exhibition, our guest on the show this week is curator of Emu Sky, Zena Cumston, who's a Barkindji woman, researcher, storyteller and writer. And full disclosure, I love this exhibition and I do work at the institution that brings has brought this exhibition to the public. But without further ado, Zena, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks so much for having me, Claire. It's lovely to talk to you again. On Emu Sky, the name of the show, uh, where did it come from? What is the emu in the sky and how does it relate to the broader themes of the show and the knowledge systems of First Nations peoples? The emu in the sky is something that is really important to lots of mobs right across Australia. For this show, we've really focused on southeastern Australia particularly and that's because we really wanted to tell the story specifically of the place, um, i.e. the Parkville campus at the University of Melbourne and its belonging to country in a really, really powerful way. And so we haven't included Torres Strait Islander knowledges or people in the show for that reason because it made a lot more sense to keep it confined within Southeastern Aboriginal culture because whilst we're all extremely diverse, uh, there are many cultural connections right across the Southeast Um, in our art making, in our ways of knowing, storytelling, even in our creative beings. So because this Emu in the Sky story is so important to so many mobs right across the southeast, it seemed like a really great one to include in the show. Um, Whilst we all have different stories associated with this, this happening in the sky, they all speak to the ecological ways of knowing and embedded knowledge that's in country. So country is sky country, it's sea country, not just the land. A lot of people sort of think that that country just means like a a landscape. Country is um, all living things and even some not living things within a a landscape. It's a way of animating country and really applying, um, I guess, the way we see country into like a, a more general understanding for other people to get as well. So we might have ancestor and creation beings, for example, that live within rocks. And rocks to other people might seem dead. Um, we also have our ancestors around us all the time. So that's another part of country. And our way of knowing country is these, I guess, what some would consider non-living beings are part of that as well. So countries in the sky too. And the emu in the sky really um, exemplifies the way in which when we look out onto country, everything we see is a map for living. And so it's really important to, I guess, take the audience in right from the start of the show to help them to understand that non-Indigenous ways of seeing can be very different to Indigenous ways of seeing. And because of the erasures of colonisation that continue today, because colonisation obviously is not a point in time but is an ongoing structure that we all have to work very hard to dismantle, we still don't know a lot about these knowledges. So Uncle Badger Bates, who's um, an elder from my country, um, I'm Barkindji and so is Uncle Badge. He was one of the first people that I got involved in the show and he has this beautiful lino cut called Emu Sky and that's where the title of the show comes from. And I guess what it really speaks to is it exemplifies those different ways of knowing. Non-Indigenous people might look in the sky and just see kind of a big black spot, whereas we look in the sky at that Emu in the sky and we 
can see the whole sky, the dark and the light. And I guess it exemplifies our holistic ways of knowing, whereas, you know, non-Indigenous um, science might look for the stars and what they're doing. We kind of look at everything. And so the emu in the sky, I think um, non-Indigenous science calls it the Colsac Nebula. So it's just kind of really a big black hole. So I thought it was a really nice allegory for the way that sometimes people might look at our scientific practice and our ways of knowing and our embedded knowledge in country and not be able to even see it. They might just see a big black hole. But for us, it tells us what we should be doing on country to work in a sustainable way with country, to be nourished and to nourish, to have a reciprocity with country. So, for example, on my country, the emu in the sky, when its head goes down, that's the time that we're allowed to collect emu eggs and that's the only time that we're to do it. And in that way, I guess we're really um, following law and ensuring that we don't harm that really important animal, um, which is obviously a totem for many people and is also really important for the whole like ecosystem of our country. If we harmed emus and their proliferation, for example, many, many of our plants would not be reproducing and then therefore we're actually hurting ourselves because if you look after country, country will look after you. So we have these laws and ways of knowing and the emu in the sky is a really beautiful way of taking people into that story. There are over 30 Aboriginal artists, as you say, from Southeast Australia um, and also Western Australia um, represented in the show. What are some of the Aboriginal innovations that are showcased in Emu Sky? I guess when um, we talk about innovation in relation to the show, um, there's a lot represented and we've really tried to take people on a learning journey so people can come into the show and just really enjoy the artworks for their absolute aesthetic beauty or they can go on the journey with us if they wish to. And there's a lot of information on the wall text, not in an overwhelming way, but I guess asking people to come along if they wish to know more. Um, And we've also got a really extensive website that um, we're adding things to all the time that are another way that our audience can really, um, I guess, take it to the level that they wish to in terms of their learning. So I guess in terms of innovation, one of the most striking pieces for me is Jonathan Jones' Grindstones. They really speak to our innovation on country because without developing grindstone technology, there are many places in this place we now call Australia where people would not have been able to stay. And I really see our plant use, which is something that I've been particularly interested in through my research work, as the backbone of our ability to survive and thrive for the longest time imaginable. So, for example, on my country, um, we don't actually have rock and rock that we can use uh, for grindstone technology. But around 12,000 years ago, my people started using grindstone, um, as we always do, negotiated with our neighbours three or 400 kilometres away, and we have compacted sandstone grindstones that we um, brought in to be able to utilise all of the things around us to their best capacity. So being able to grind using a grindstone like grind seeds means that even in really, really tough times on country, when country really, really contracts, like not much water, um, animals not around to eat and lots and lots of plants not fruiting, you can get seed. And if you can get seed, you can grind seed and you can turn it into bread and all sorts of other really nutritionally valuable Um, things to eat so grindstones I know on my country have been 
really important for us to be able to stay on country, even in really, really intense times of contraction. And Jonathan tells the story about how, I guess, large these technological innovations were right across Australia in terms of our story as a people and how we have survived over the longest time imaginable. And Uncle Stan Grant Sr. speaks as part of a soundscape with that grindstone's work. And he is talking to us about the abundance of country. So it's a really beautiful work in that it, it really um, supersizes, and the grindstones are supersized in the space, it really supersizes the understanding of how innovative we have been over time and how that's really, it's our scientific understandings, our careful, careful observation, our innovation that has allowed us to be the world's oldest living culture. You're listening to Lost in Science, where Claire is talking to Barkanji woman, researcher, storyteller and writer Zena Cumston about the new exhibition Emu Sky. You did an incredible amount of research for the show, um, visiting the herbarium at the University of Melbourne as well. What did you find when you were going on that journey, especially at the herbarium, or what didn't you find? Well, originally the show was planned to be a collaboration between the herbarium and a group of Aboriginal artists. And so as a starting point, I went into the herbarium, as you say, and um, I spent a couple of weeks looking at um, many things across the herbarium. Um, I was really lucky in that Joe Birch, who runs the University of Melbourne Herbarium, is a really wonderful person and very generous and kind, and she really helped me a lot with what I was looking for. And after a couple of weeks, I really sadly realised that there wasn't any Indigenous knowledge that I could find within the Herbarium collection, despite the fact it you know, was a really long-standing collection, like I think over 180 years of people working to collect things. I was, I guess, naive in being shocked by that because I have worked in the museums and galleries sector long enough to know that we often aren't, I guess, represented in the collections in a way that's meaningful. Um, there's been a real silencing of our ways of knowing and I guess the specificity of country where, you know, a lot of the time collections will just say Aboriginal and won't tell you where that item has come from and therefore doesn't really carry any of the knowledge of that cultural um, item because we are so diverse and each country has its own knowledge systems and ways of holding it and very diverse communities. So, yeah, I was shocked that I found nothing, but then I realised I really shouldn't have been. I do feel that sometimes um, an aspect of that isn't really considered and that is that it actually hurts a bit to go into collections like that and to, to not see your culture represented at all and to see that some people have worked on the same country for 30, 40, 50 years and they haven't engaged at all, I find it quite shocking because even to, I guess, not believe in um, in the knowledge we have of country is one thing that's like sort of through a deep ignorance, I suppose, but even the fact that there wasn't even any of our tools that we use to crack open seeds and to grind as part of those scientists' sort of undertakings in that one place seemed very, very strange to me because even if you can't understand our knowledge, I feel like people can at least understand the innovation of our, our tools and equipment that we've used for a really long time. So having found nothing, I realised very quickly that I didn't really want to put Aboriginal artists through the same thing as me, that disappointment and upset 
And I really wondered about the story that we could tell because I don't really want to tell stories about big gaping holes. And then I guess the other problem was is that more and more as I'm getting older, I'm trying to think about all of my projects and how they benefit my community, my Aboriginal community. And this project would have benefited the herbarium a lot because Aboriginal people would have come in and applied their knowledge to the things that they were finding in the herbarium. And that's, you know, that's a wonderful outcome um, for the herbarium. And I, I'm not a mean-spirited person that would ever not want that for people. But unfortunately, there's no reciprocity in that exchange or not enough for me. And so I um, went to Science Gallery, who were auspicing the show, and we had a really big talk about reciprocity and how this can benefit Aboriginal community members. And that's when we kind of pivoted the show. So we do have one piece in the show that is a result of that time that I spent in the herbarium. Um, and that's some beautiful language posters that we made because the herbarium specimens themselves are artworks. They are absolutely so beautiful. And if people haven't seen them before, I really encourage you um, to get along to a herbarium that you have access to. And most of us would have access to at least one because these are public institutions and have a look because they speak so much to the maker. Um, I especially really loved the herbarium specimens that women made. They're very different to the ones that men make. But everyone has their own style, even though it's science and everything's supposed to be done exactly the same way. We know that there's no such thing as um, one way to do anything. And it's actually just a choice that people make. And those specimens really show me that when I look at them and how different they are. People love to think that science is written in stone and there's only one way to do it. And that's absolutely not true. Um, science is a series of processes that are choices by people that have been made and many of them have been ingrained over a really long time and it's important to have consistency most certainly. But we have to understand as well that some of these decisions have been made in times of really gross and inequitable power um, imbalances. So I think we do have to look at the way that we do things in science and we do have to be reflexive and look at our own practices within that realm and understand that science has actively for a really, really long time locked people out and we need to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future, that we have a diversity of voices because everything is stronger when you have more people coming together to make knowledge because it just is smart to listen to other people's ideas and innovations as you move along. So the Herbarium partnership didn't happen, but it was wonderful to be able to find a way to still make the project happen and for it to directly benefit um, Aboriginal community members along the way and the stories that we want to tell and everything in the show not one thing comes from the collections anywhere it's all been made right now and it's all things that Aboriginal people want you to know about right now and that's exciting to me nothing's been taken under gross um, imbalances in power nothing's been taken with you know problematic provenance it's all right here right now. Storytelling and connection to country is a really fundamental part of the Emu Sky show. And one work in particular that I think has a very long and incredible story to tell are the drill core samples uh, on display, collaboration with Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher. And they tell a fascinating story of caring for country and um, Indigenous fire practice. Can you talk us through that story, Zena? Yeah, so... Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher works at the University of Melbourne 
I think he's called a paleoecologist. I'm not sure. But what he does is he looks at pollen and charcoal from deep within the earth and he can tell different things that were happening on country at specific times over a really long time period. So what he does is he drills down into the ground, takes these core samples, and they're often taken from underneath um, like billabongs because water <clears throat> apparently is really great for preserving those um, tiny, tiny little things that he's wanting to look at. So Michael's not an artist, but I have been lucky to work with him at the university when I was still there. And he showed me his core samples um, and I just thought they looked absolutely beautiful. The transitions in the soil and just the story that they tell of country and how important that is. And right from the start of this show, we wanted so much to reflect, uh, I guess, Aboriginal pedagogical practice, like meaning the way we do things and the way we think about things. And so I really wanted past, present and future to be simultaneous as it is within our culture. Um, it's more, it's not a linear sort of understanding. Past, present and future exist together in so many parts of our, our culture and our understanding of the world around us. And so this exemplified it beautifully because Michael Sean is looking at the past, he's reflecting on the present and he's speaking about how those past practices that he can unveil through those core samples can actually really help us in the future when we're looking at, I guess, ways to meet challenges of climate change such as, you know, catastrophic fire that we're experiencing. And, you know, Michael's work really is talking about how some of the, the challenges that we face today aren't actually a result of climate change just on its own. They're a result of taking people off country. And so by looking at those pollen samples and those charcoal samples, Michael can tell us what sort of cultural fire practice was happening and what sort of, I guess, benefits to country it was having through the pollen that then comes in the next layer after that cultural burn. Um, and that's a really important story for all of us into the future. People are starting to understand about cultural fire and management of country and how important it is, and that it's one of the many tools at our disposal that hasn't really been properly reinvigorated and, I guess, played out across the country. It's not the be-all and end-all. We as Aboriginal people don't, that burden can't come onto us to be the ones that, that work out how to, to mitigate climate change. But together, it's one of the things that we can do is empowering people to get back on country and to fulfil their cultural obligations to look after country through things like cultural fire. So the core samples look really, really beautiful um, and they look like an artwork, but really that they tell the story of past, present and future and our knowledge of country and how much more it needs to be empowered and reinvigorated. So, Zena, how can people find out more about Emu Sky? Yeah, thanks, Claire. I'd love people to get along if they are in um, Melbourne. It would be really wonderful to, you know, know that lots of people are experiencing the show and it's been made for all ages. So we even have text labels for young people. Um, so, yeah, family groups I'm hoping will come along too. But if you want to know more about the show, um, you can go to emusky.culturalcommons.edu.au and that's our website. But you can also just put in emusky exhibition 
Melbourne University and it will come up straight away. And so it's on Tuesdays to Fridays from 10 till 4 and then it's also open on Saturdays and that's from 11 till 4. And the show runs right through until August 21st. It's just been extended. It was supposed to finish at the end of July. And now, yeah, it's until the end of August. So hopefully people can come along. And we've got um, some beautiful essays written by um, a diversity of um, black thinkers and black academics. Uh, and that's also on the website. So if people can't make it to NAM, to Melbourne, then there's a way to engage with the show through that. And that's going to be an iterative, um, I guess, resource where when the show's finished, we're also going to be uh, putting a lot more content up and more content up as we um, hopefully get into public programs and, and greater explorations of the show along the journey. Well, thank you so much, Zena, for joining us today, for sharing your knowledge and your expertise. And also thank you for curating this um, incredible, fascinating, important exhibition. And I do encourage everyone to jump online and check out Emu Sky. What are you onto? Anything of interest to the uh, scientific community? Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, we've done a few stories about sleep over the last few months. I don't know why this is a common theme uh, in the show, but um, sleep's a pretty important thing. At least I find it quite important. And like many other things I think are important, I don't seem to have enough of it at at times. I do acknowledge it's like quite important to health. I think more and more so being realised how it's quite more and more important to health, which I'm something that I resent, those conclusions. But, uh, you know, um, our toddlers are improving, so... I'll get there one day. Well, it is. It's one of those things that, in in some ways, we have sort of not so much control over. You can control how much exercise you do and how much you, you know what what your diet consists of and all those sorts of things. But how much sleep you get is not necessarily up to you all the time. But one of the things we don't really understand about sleep, and there are many, as we've found, is the actual entry and exit from sleep. Uh, into wakefulness or the, or the boundary between being awake and being asleep. Um, and when we're falling asleep, we pass into what is known as a hypnagogic state or hypnagogic state, depending on who you speak to about it, um, which has also been generally used to refer to the state between sleep and waking up. Um, there's another word for waking up, which was hypnopompia, which is a, a 19th century word, but gets used less and less in the literature, apparently. Um, Possibly because we wake up from sleep due to an alarm, it's a lot quicker, maybe, than we go to sleep. That could be that could well be a reason. Um, there's there's a lot more ways to wake yourself up on mm. purpose as well. Mm. Um, but the sensations between you know the, the, between being asleep and being awake is probably kind of the same thing, and they do have similar um, you know sensations, and there's there might not really be much of a distinction between your brain being asleep and your brain being awake. So uh, when people are falling asleep and experiencing hypnagogia, the body is getting ready to shut down and the mind is switching from a conscious state to a sleeping state, which is usually when you first fall asleep is a non-REM sleep. So non-REM sleep is 
what we call deep sleep, and it's when we're asleep but not dreaming. And and they've measured electrical activity in the brain during non-REM sleep, and there's not much happening when you're in this deep sleep state. Now, REM sleep is when we're asleep and dreaming, and there's high levels of electric activity because uh, the brain's active. It's, it's producing these images and experiences that are all in your head, which is what the dreams are. Um, so we're not always dreaming when we're asleep, is what you're saying. There's like there's, there's non-dream states. Yeah, mostly mostly the the REM sleep, the dreaming parts are sort of sandwiched in between non-dreaming sections of sleep, which is which is seems to be when you get the most rest for your brain because there's nothing happening. It's kind of just sleeping. Now, during the transition to sleep. People have reported experiencing all sorts of things, including sensory hallucinations and states similar to what we understand as dreaming. But the the brain activity doesn't seem to match up with what they've measured in people's people's brains when they're actually having REM sleep. So the the difference between the two things is a bit of a mystery. Um, a lot of people have reported seeing you know random spots which might be related to just, you know, the light receptors in your eyes shutting down or turning back on again after they've been resting, but we don't really know. But not everyone just sees random spots. Some people report seeing patterns in the spots or even objects, and some people see entire scenes while they're falling asleep. So they're, they're, they're almost uh, dreaming, but the, it doesn't match up with what the neuro, neurological definition of, of dreaming is. So there's they're seeing things in their mind, but they're not dreaming. They're not in the state that we associate with dreaming. So they do call them hypnagogic hallucinations because they're separating it for various reasons from what we would call dreaming in, in normal sleep. Um, some people even experience vivid dream fragments as they fall asleep or wake up. And if you're waking up and you're experiencing dream fragments while you're partly conscious or you're starting to wake up that can be very disorienting and sometimes people even imagine that they're awake when actually they're still in bed Mm. asleep Uh, but they're so close to being awake that we don't really call it dreaming so they get quite it can be quite confusing Um, and I've certainly had the experience of thinking I was awake and getting ready and getting getting ready for work and then realizing oh hang on I'm actually still asleep and then having to wake up and go through the whole process all over again um So these kinds of reports are apparently more common in sleep-deprived people, though nobody really understands why that would be the case. It might be, you know, maybe it's your subconscious trying to override and say, no, you need more sleep, stay in bed, you don't have to go to work, we'll just trick you and keep you in bed. But nobody really understands why that is the case. Um, Also something people have reported widely is the so-called Tetris effect. Um, Tetris is a video game where you stack up little blocks on a screen to make complete rows and then you win the row and get points. Um, But so this is when people actually have the image of a task that they've been repeatedly viewing uh, sometime before they fall asleep. So especially common with new experiences apparently. So if someone gets a new job that's very repetitive, they will often have images of the of the process that they've been doing at work and that sort of thing. Yeah, I remember playing a lot of Tetris and then yeah, having those Tetris visions. Uh it's very accurately named um phenomenon. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I always wondered, does it make you better at the game? Because you can see games playing out as you're falling asleep. Probably not. Um, but visual hallucinations or visions are not the only thing people experience. People can experience auditory hallucinations. They can hear things. They can also experience physical sensations. The most common is probably uh, the feeling of falling, which results in people usually suddenly jerking awake from from almost being asleep. Uh, this is called uh, a hypnic jerk, um, which I thought always thought was a good name for a, like a '60s band, a hypnic, the hypnic jerks. Um, but these are this is a very common hallucination because you're not actually falling; you're just lying in bed, but you get the sensation you are falling. You wake up, but you're literally falling asleep in that sense. Yeah, I guess. And I, I was actually wondering today if other languages call it falling asleep, or mm. there's some other way of describing it. But falling asleep makes a lot of sense in that uh, context. Um, again, this is very common in sleep-deprived people, possibly because they're trying to stay awake for some reason, but they can happen to anyone, anytime, really. Um, people have also reported tactile sensations, so people feel pressure on their skin or on their on their body, um, and some people even feel that there's something crawling on them. So I I think I'd probably that was probably rather that was a hallucination if I was trying to fall asleep. That no, 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 I'm just imagining it. There's nothing crawling on my face. It could be the cat uh, in the bed. <laughs> well, the cat makes it, yeah, the cat's a lot more than just you know tickling on, on your skin. Um, people could also hear sounds and voices or even speech, uh, and even music. Some people can hear whole bits of music, not music that they know, but actually imagined music, they kind of hallucinate it, which would be probably handy if you're a musician. Um, but again, not if you're sleep deprived. And people can also, or have also reported, being able to taste and smell things that are not actually there as well as they're falling asleep, which would have to be would have to be a tricky one to remember when you wake up as well. It's like, well, did I really imagine I was smelling, you know, roses or... Anyway, um... The cause of this is not very well understood, even though this kind of uh, hallucination has been reported since ancient times. Um, people like Aristotle were writing about this kind of stuff thousands of years ago, and they've been written about in literature for centuries as well. But more recently, um, research into consciousness itself, which is still something we don't really have a good handle on what it actually is, um, and the apparent similarities between these hypnagogic hypnagogic states and other neurological conditions has prompted further research in the hope that understanding these uh, more day-to-day functions might help treat other dysfunctions. So there's, there's, you know, healthy debate among researchers, which is ongoing. Some suggest that the hypnagogic state is separate. It's a separate state from both being awake and being asleep. So it's a third sort of consciousness state. Um, others have suggested that maybe there's a kind of hidden REM mechanism uh, that is not related directly to electrical activity. In other words, you can't detect it, but it's actually the same as what's going on during dreaming. But without being able to detect it, it makes it very difficult to argue that that's what's happening as well. Um, look, there may even be connections between waking hallucination in people who may be experiencing mental illness and these hypnagogic hallucinations, and also a connection with dreams themselves. But it will take a lot more research across multiple scientific disciplines to put this mystery to bed.
And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.